This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Phantom Ship There are some images that stay with you forever. Images, scenes, moments in time that stay with you forever. Sometimes they are incidents from your real life that you can't forget. Sometimes they are scenes from books or movies that get lodged in the dark recesses of your brain. If they're powerful enough, they enter the collective unconscious, haunting generation after generation. Oh sure, most of the time you don't even know they're there. In your mind, they sail beyond the horizon, beyond the edge of sight. But every once in a while, the mists of your memory clear. These half-remembered things begin to emerge from the shadows of the past. They sail along the distant curve of your consciousness. Gusts of fear blow through you like the chill of an icy sea wind, and then the fog of your mind closes in around them again. And they are gone once more. We want to tell you a story. When we were young, And we don't remember how old we were. When we were young, our parents took us and our sisters to the Walt Disney World theme park in Orlando, Florida. They saved up all year for the trip, and we were pretty dang lucky to have a chance to go. For the most part, we had a blast. At least as far as we can remember, because most of the trip has faded from our memory. Except one part. There's one part we can never forget. Our parents convinced us to ride the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. Now, we have to admit that when we were young, we were kind of timid. We weren't the fan of thrill rides and scares and chills that we are now. So it took a lot of convincing. The tricky part was convincing us the ride was not a thrill ride, that it would not go upside down, and it was not a fast ride. Finally, after much convincing and many reassurances, we agreed to go on the ride. We'll explain a few things here. For the benefit of those of you who have never been to Disney World or Disneyland, or for those of you who are not theme park aficionados, the Pirates of the Caribbean is what is called a dark ride. And the Disney theme parks are pretty big on dark rides. A dark ride is an enclosed ride which takes passengers on a vehicle through various scenes and sets. The scenes usually involve animatronics, special lighting, and various special effects. Everything from fog to strobe lights to pyrotechnics. They can be gentle and romantic like the old Tunnel of Love type rides. They can be educational like the various rides at Disney's Epcot theme park or they can be scary and exciting like haunted house rides. Now we should point out that the name Dark Ride doesn't refer to the fact that the ride is dark. Some are, some aren't. It depends on the theme. It means that the ride is completely enclosed and relies on artificial illumination. If you shut off the lights, it'd be dark. One of the earliest dark rides that led to their popularity at Disney parks wasn't made for Disney at all. See, in 1964, the World's Fair was being hosted in Queens, New York. General Electric, or GE, was working on a pavilion to showcase how far technology had taken people, 
and how much further it would take them yet. They called it Progress Land. For the centerpiece of the pavilion, GE had this concept for a rotating theater. It would carry the audience through various scenes of technological progress, each scene filled with animated talking figures explaining the wonders on display. And GE knew the Walt Disney Company had the technology to do it. See, Disney spent years perfecting this technology they called audio animatronics. Audio animatronics are stationary robotic performers. Disney began rolling out the technology at the Disneyland theme park. The first attraction opened in 1963 was the Enchanted Tiki Room. It was a sort of tropical dinner theater. Guests could enjoy a meal while audio animatronic tropical animals sang and danced and told jokes. And it was a big hit. Too big a hit, it turned out. See, Disney had placed an animatronic bird next to the queue to talk to guests while they waited to go in. And the audience proved to be so enraptured by the bird that it slowed the queuing lines down to a crawl. In the end, the bird had to go. GE contacted Disney to have them develop the carousel of progress inside Progress Land. And Disney delivered an unrivaled animatronic performance. It was a huge hit. So big a hit, in fact, that the attraction moved to Disneyland in California after the World's Fair ended in 1965. And so big a hit that Walt Disney wanted to do more with the animatronic technology. Not a simple show, not a mere rotating theater, an entire ride. Perhaps, they thought, the riders could ride through various animated scenes. Say, in a boat driven along a slow-moving canal by a track under the water. And they could enjoy scenes of swashbuckling pirate fun. And in April of 1967, Pirates of the Caribbean opened in Disneyland to rave reviews. It was so well-liked that a duplicate of the ride opened in Walt Disney World in Florida in 1973. And in Tokyo Disneyland in 1983. And in Disneyland Paris in 1992. And in movie theaters across the country in 2003. And 2006. And 2007. And 2011. And 2017. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Pirates of the Caribbean is not a scary ride for the most part. It's action-packed and exciting, sure. Really, it's riding a slow-moving boat through kind of comic swashbuckling pirate adventure scenes. But it does start off with the boat plunging down a small waterfall. Well, a slight incline to be fair. But at a young enough age, it's all the same thing. And the ride pauses right at the top of the waterfall for drama and tension. A simulated storm rages around you, which, in itself, can seem quite daunting if you are young enough. There's even an illuminated skeleton figure at the wheel of a wrecked ship. We remember it saying things like, Yar, hold on to the rails, matey. There be rough waters ahead. <laughs> Yikes. It's a momentary thing. The boat holds there for a few seconds, then, released, it slides down the waterfall and the ride proper starts. Unless the ride gets stuck. 
In which case, you sit atop a perilous plunging waterfall staring wide-eyed into a pitch-black drop filled with rushing water as a storm rages around you and a nightmarish undead cackling skeleton in command of a ghost ship warns you you're lost forever in the briny deep unless you stay seated and an ominous voice makes a point of emphasizing that dead man tell no tales. <laughs> Quadruple yikes. That kind of thing sticks with you. Not only that, it really damages the trust a child has for their parents. Now, you might be wondering why we bring this up. Apart from the fact that we needed to get that off our chest. We bring it up because few of the haunting images that grace the spooky, scary fantasy adventure spectrum are more chilling than a skeletal ship with tattered sails and rigging strung like broken spiderwebs blowing on an unfelt wind. It emerges from a dark fog on a pitch-black nighttime sea, glowing with eerie supernatural blue light. See? You can picture it. It's good. Disney has certainly gotten a lot of mileage out of it. And almost five billion dollars. We're talking of the film franchise we hinted at above, the one that started in 2003 with the release of Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl. Directed by Gore Verbinski and produced by Jerry Bruckheimer. Starring Johnny Depp, Jeffrey Rush, Orlando Bloom, and Kira Knightley. And look, whatever you might think of the franchise now, you have to admit that first film was pretty dang good. Good enough to the tune of over $650 million on a $140 million budget. We really enjoyed it. The first film tells the story of the cursed pirate crew of the Black Pearl, known in the pirate and sailing business as a phantom ship. Well, sort of. We'll get to that. Look, we really don't need to rehash the plot, except to say that the Black Pearl is a ship whose pirate crew did evil things and offended some Aztec spirits. They managed to get themselves cursed to forever roam the seas as undead and prey on the ships of the living. Fairly standard stuff. In fact, the plot works so well that they used it again in the sequels, with another different ship called the Flying Dutchman, also cursed to roam the sea forever because of evil things and curses and stuff. And we will come back to that, we promise. But we should mention, the successful Pirates of the Caribbean film wasn't made because of the ride. Not exactly. But it almost didn't get made because of a different Disney attraction. So, there were these two screenwriters named Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio, right? They worked on Disney's Aladdin back in the 90s. After that movie was such a success, they decide what they really want to do next is a pirate movie. They love pirates. They think it'll be great fun. So they start writing a script and pitch it to Disney. But Disney doesn't want it. No studio does, in fact. Because who watches pirate movies anymore? But the duo doesn't care. They write the script anyway. Meanwhile, at Disney, there's this idea floating around. They want to start doing film adaptations of popular Disneyland rides and attractions. They compile a list of possibilities. It, of course, includes Pirates of the Caribbean. Screenwriter Jay Wolpert is asked to head the project, and producer Jerry Bruckheimer becomes interested. So they ask various screenwriters to come in and try their hand at it, which is brilliant because they hate every script brought to them. 
the ones based on the ride, and the ones that were pretty much standard pirate movies. And then Bruckheimer got in touch with Elliot and Rossio, the people who had their pirate movie script collecting dust for years. A pirate movie tinged with the supernatural, a pirate movie with comedic elements and fun characters and lots of charm. And Bruckheimer realized that's what he wanted, something that wasn't a conventional pirate movie, something that could combine funny and scary the way the Disney ride did, and something with a supernatural element to it. And then Disney CEO Michael Eisner heard about the project and decided to kill it. See, Disney had just lost a lot of money with this whole movies based on theme park attractions thing. You remember the movie The Country Bears? Yeah, neither does anyone else. It was based on the Disney animatronic attraction called the Country Bear Jamboree, and it bombed hard. So Eisner decided to kill the Pirates of the Caribbean movie before any money got wasted on filming. And then Bruckheimer showed him the concept art and storyboards and models. And it worked. The movie got made anyway, and it was also given the subtitle Curse of the Black Pearl so that they could make sequels if they wanted to. And that brings us to the Flying Dutchman, and to phantom ships. The Black Pearl was a phantom ship invented for the film, but it has the legend of a specific ghost ship as its basis, the Flying Dutchman. As was the ghost ship in the sequels, which was outright called the Flying Dutchman. The Flying Dutchman is a nautical legend that has haunted the seas for generations. The basic legend is actually pretty simple. There's this ghost ship that sails the seas called the Flying Dutchman. Sometimes sailors see it. Most often, it appears out of a supernatural reddish light, and sometimes out of a dark fog. And any crew that lays eyes on the Flying Dutchman is about to have a very bad day. One of the oldest and best-known accounts of an encounter of the Flying Dutchman comes from July of 1881 from a young man soon to be King George V. At the time, he was only Prince George. He and his older brother, Prince Albert Victor, are aboard the HMS Bacante near Australia. According to Prince George, around four in the morning on a calm, clear night, a red light appeared on the horizon. A crewman called out from the topmast that he could make out a ship in the light. Others saw it too, and then without warning, the crewman fell from the topmast and struck the decks, dead. Similar sightings have happened throughout maritime history, also reportedly accompanied by disaster. Even in the modern era, residents of Cape Town, South Africa saw a ghost ship appear and disappear on the horizon in 1939. During World War II, both British and German crews spotted the phantom ship in various places. But stories of the phantom vessel date back hundreds of years. Various literary works in the 1790s describe ghost ships appearing out of storms or fogs, always as heralds of disaster. Look at the famous seven-part poem by Samuel Taylor Coleridge, The Rime of the Ancient Mariner. The appearance of a ghost ship foreshadows the death of the entire crew, save the titular mariner. Granted, that's a minor moment in the story compared to what everyone misunderstands about the albatross and the oft-misquoted line about there being water, water everywhere, nor any drop to drink. But we digress. The point is, the Flying Dutchman is an old story. The problem is, we can't say quite how old, 
because no one is sure how the story got started or where the ghost ship came from. In the most popular version of the legend, the ship's captain is a man named Hendrik van der Decken, called the Dutchman, because he was Dutch. He's a merchant mariner with the Dutch East India Company, and he carries goods between Europe and India. Now, the route from Europe to India took a ship around the Cape of Good Hope, named in the same way that Greenland got called Greenland and Iceland, Iceland. Marketing. The Cape of Good Hope is a rocky little spit of land at the very southernmost tip of Africa. If you want to go around Africa, you have to go around it. The first charting was done by Bartolomeu Diaz of Portugal in 1488. He set out to figure how big Africa was and how far you had to go to get around it. The Cape of Good Hope is where warm water from the Indian Ocean collides with cold from Antarctica. Because of that, rough seas and violent storms used to rack ships in the waters offshore on a regular basis. And that's why, according to one story, Diaz named it the Cape of Storms. As honest a name as there ever was. But, so the stories go, King John II thought that was a terrible name. He wanted to give it a nice hopeful name. The new route meant Europe could resume trade with India. It replaced the land route lost when the Islamic Caliphate shut down the entire Middle East, which killed global trade. We discussed that back in our three-part episode about navigation. Anyway, it's difficult to convince people your new route around the continent of Africa is the way to go if you call it the Cape of Storms. People tend to spot that from a distance and go, no, thank you. We'd rather stay home. Back to the story. Hendrik van der Decken and his crew were sailing their ship around the Cape of Good Hope when a nasty storm blew up. The Dutchman insisted the ship could get around the Cape before the storm hit, but the crew was dubious. Dubious enough to mutiny. So the Dutchman put down the rebellion, you know, with violence. Then van der Decken insisted that no member of the crew would touch the shore again until the ship had rounded the cape. Exactly the sort of words that create ghost ships. Because sure enough, the ship wrecked in the storm. And to this day, the Dutchman and his sailors forever roam the sea, bound and doomed by his own words. Another legend says the Dutchman once murdered a member of his crew to steal away his girlfriend, and the storm that blew up in the Cape of Good Hope was divine punishment for that act. Crew and captain cursed to roam the sea as ghosts, at least until the Dutchman could go ashore and find a woman that would love his undead form. Seems unlikely. Still other legends say the crew of the ship contracted a strange disease. No one would let them ashore for fear of infection, and so they remain at sea forever, unable to ever find a cure. Some stories suggest that the Flying Dutchman is actually the ship of one Captain Bernard Folk. Folk sailed for the East India Company as well. It said he won a game of dice with the devil. The prize? The blessing of legendary speed, for which the devil condemned him to sail the seas forever. Captain Folk is known for his amazing speed crossing from Amsterdam to Indonesia. Of course, these stories are all old sailor stories, though often referenced in other works, stories about the Flying Dutchman rarely named the actual ship. 
Only when Wagner immortalized the story of Captain Vanderdecken in his opera The Flying Dutchman did the ship get a name. And it has been haunting the seas of literature and pop culture ever since. Heck, even SpongeBob SquarePants encountered The Flying Dutchman. The Flying Dutchman is also the reason people refer to supernatural vessels as phantom ships. In 1839, English naval officer and author Frederick Marriott wrote a book all about the Flying Dutchman, and he entitled it The Phantom Ship. Since then, maritime supernatural enthusiasts used the term phantom ship to describe ghost vessels that sail the seas with no living crew, and also to describe ships discovered with all crew missing or dead for mysterious, unexplained reasons. Now, if you played the amazing indie puzzle game Return of the Obra Din. You're familiar with this story. It's designed by Lucas Pope, whose previous claim to fame was the fantastic Papers, Please. A ship assumed lost is discovered adrift at sea. The crew is dead or missing. And you are an investigator with divinatory powers, tasked with investigating what happened. But this actually mirrors one of the most famous phantom ship stories in all history, a mystery which is still under investigation to this day. The story begins in December of 1872, in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. The crew of a British trading ship, the Diagratia, spots another ship adrift and listing in the water. When they board the ship to render aid, they discover the ship is bound on the same course they are. In fact, it left the same port, New York City, eight days before. It long since should have reached its destination in Genoa, Italy. The crew of the Diagradia discover that not one member of the ten-man crew remains aboard. They discover the ship is taken on water, which is why it's listing, but it's not anywhere near enough to sink her. Otherwise, it's not in any other danger of sinking. The ship's cargo, 1,800 barrels of industrial alcohol, is intact. The crew's belongings remain in their cabins. The ship's stores of food and water are intact. And the ship's one lifeboat is missing. It's clear the crew has abandoned the ship in haste, but there's no evidence of any reason to do so. Also, the crew dismantled one of the ship's pumps, for no clear reason. Eventually, the Diagradia makes port with the Mary Celeste behind them. Local authorities hold a hearing to determine salvage rights. The crew receive minimal pay for their efforts, but due to the mysterious circumstances, no salvage from the insurers. It's never proven, but some say the Diagradia crew overwhelmed the Mary Celeste themselves perhaps as part of an insurance scam or other conspiracy to defraud and claim salvage rights. Of course, the timing of events didn't align with that idea. The mystery of an abandoned intact ship and a crew all but vanished from the face of the earth haunts writers of the day. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, publishes a sensational account of the whole event with little actual fact. Although, from then on, people can't keep the Mary Celeste and the Marie Celeste, Doyle's version, straight. Having sparked the public's imagination, others were soon writing about the mystery. It was pirates, suggested some, or drunken mutiny, 
or sea monsters, or mysterious water spouts, or a homicidal crew member who systematically picks off the rest of the crew and then sails off alone. As played by Bella Lugosi in the 1935 film adaptation of the story. The story of the Mary Celeste still haunts writers, historians, and documentarians today, like Anne McGregor and Phil Richardson. They set out in 2002 to lead a scientific investigation to determine what happened on the ship, and to make a documentary while they were at it. The documentary took five years of tireless work and presented a plausible theory. It involves a coal dust clogged pump, a bad chronometer, and an overcautious captain. Ultimately, though, it was inconclusive and unsatisfactory. And McGregor promised to continue investigating the mystery, unsatisfied with her own conclusions. And although it doesn't seem like she's finished the book yet, she may still be working on it. We can't find any evidence that she is, but that doesn't mean she isn't. After all, some images haunt you forever. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com.